Hey everyone, I'm April and you're listening to The Labster Podcast. Our host is Dr. S.J. Bolton, an educational designer and former university lecturer who now develops Labster's interactive virtual lab simulations for students in high school, college, and university. This podcast is our space to share time with you and introduce you to a few of the really innovative and inspiring educators we get to meet as we together go about our mission of empowering the next generation to change the world. Welcome to episode 25. Our special guest on this episode is Dr. Edgardo Sanabria Valentin, a biology professor and associate director of PRISM, which stands for the Program for Research Initiatives in Science and Math at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a Hispanic-serving institution within the City University of New York. Increasing opportunities for underrepresented students to succeed in STEM has long been a part of Edgardo's distinguished career between his experience in developing undergraduate research programs at NYU's Leadership Alliance, Harvard University's Microbial Sciences Initiative, and his current leadership at PRISM. We first got to know Edgardo when he began teaching with Labster, and we're proud to say that he was a 2022 winner of the Labster STEM Excellence Award. And with that introduction, let's get our conversation started. Welcome to the podcast, Edgardo. Good morning. Well, at least good morning over here in New Jersey. And uh, (laughs) thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here today. I'm so excited to have you here, Edgardo. It's been too long since we last spoke. After hearing your introduction, I am already full of so many questions, so I'm just going to dive right in. One part of your bio that really stood out to me is your work as the Associate Director of PRISM at John Jay College for Criminal Justice. I should probably say, for listeners that aren't familiar with it, PRISM is the Programme for Research Initiatives in Science and Maths at John Jay College, and it's been recognised as a model for excellence for improving the number of underrepresented students in the STEM pipeline, which is amazing by the National Science Foundation and the National Academy of Sciences and CUNY. Yeah, I mean, come on. (laughs) How can you top that really, Edgardo? Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the PRISM program and what you do there. Of course. Uh, So PRISM was founded around 17 years ago and at John Day. And the goal was to expose our students to the practice of science outside of the classroom. John Jay traditionally had a really bad record of retaining science students. Our main majors are related to criminal justice, of Mm -hmm. course. So uh, our majors in science are uh, uh, forensic science, toxicology, uh, molecular biology. We like to say it is, you know, forensic sciences, how do you evaluate evidence, toxicology, what they use to kill you, <laughs> and um, molecular uh, molecular biology is figuring out who the baby daddy is. I love it. As a pharmacologist, this resonates. <laughs> and because of the increase in uh, exposure in popular culture to the scientific aspects of criminal justice, we became quite popular in the 90s, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Our enrollment went up the roof, and we were barely graduating any students. We noticed two things. First, there was a group of students that came in and either changed majors or dropped out after the first semester. And then there were a group of students that were able to survive that first year and then struggle with the second year curriculum, which includes organic chemistry, which is, you know, a traditional, very much survive or fail course. So there were several uh, curricular changes happening at the same time. We focus on 
how do we make sure that these students that are uh, uh, that are able to survive are then go on to actually graduate, then go on to actually find uh, employment, and particularly, can we guide them to potential career, professional careers in STEM? And this part precedes me. I started at John Jay in 2014. So the program was founded as a small uh, undergrad research program, relatively informal, and that alone made a big difference. In the class of 2007, our first class, we only had five students, out of which all five ended up pursuing uh, doctoral degrees. Oh, wow. One of them is a faculty member at John Jay. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I love it when that happens. <laughs> I love it too. And uh, since then, we have continued just that exposure to research allows students to see themselves as professionals in the field more than just being students. Yeah. So that that caused a big change. And uh, my my boss and the founder of the program, which is Dr. Anthony Carpi, published a study looking at what was the cause of that change in motivation. And uh, what if he found, what they found was that Students uh, uh, that come in, uh, uh, that come from populations that are more expected in science, yes, tend to uh, apply to programs like ours because they're planning to pursue postgraduate uh, programs. Mm. Latinos and African Americans and Native Americans, in particular are a little bit more shy about approaching, so we go and recruit them. And what we found is that it was the experience of having a research mentor, being in a lab, that allowed them to see themselves as practitioners and seeing, hey, this is not just me being interested in science. I can do this. I can do this for a living. Being exposed to other professionals in STEM, meeting other uh, uh, doctoral recipients, meeting alumni that we regularly bring back to campus to talk about their experience to our students, really uh, uh, made that shift. And around that time, I started, and my goal was to expand on that, increase the number of students participating in research, but also provide professional development activities, particularly to freshmen and sophomore first and second year students, so that they start feeling as members of the community before they even uh, start taking the advanced classes. What a great like route into it. That's really cool. It's so interesting to hear you say, you know, folks, um, especially minority folks, are, are not willing to come and not that they're not willing, but are less likely to come and, and make that initial contact or make that approach. And you have to go out recruit. Was it enough to kind of talk about research to get them in? Or was there something that really caught their attention? What was it that made that those um, people that typically didn't want to engage or, or found it difficult to engage? What was it that pulled them in? Well, we have several strategies that we use. Uh, for a while, we had materials in Spanish. Mm-hmm. We profiled our students on a publication that we called the Undergraduate Research Chronicle. It can ah, nice. be found in our website. So students could, uh, uh, we published their research abstract, their photo, a little bit of their bio- biography, so that other future students can see themselves in there. We also uh, uh, are very big advocates of meeting the student where they are. The City University of New York educates the children of New York. New York is the big melting pot. Although the big melting pot uh, might not have worked everywhere, it certainly does work in the uh, in the city. And uh, so we have this big diversity of students, uh, and we uh, uh, try to figure out who are they and what do they need 
One of the things that we particularly know is that around 50% of the student population at CUNY ends up uh, having to work at some point. I'm sorry, and I'm, I'm mixing up the stats. It's 90% of students at CUNY have a job at some point during their education, and 50% of them at some point work full time. So because of that, we have been using financial incentives. I mean, it's not a livable salary, but at least we make it see that we recognize the value of their time, that we know that they have responsibilities that uh, they need to attend to. So we provide them with that. We provide them if they go to a scientific conference, we cover the whole thing. We also provide uh, their faculty mentors with funds to publish. So right now, uh, about one third of our students at some point, at least I believe it's up to five years after they graduate, they will end up with a peer-reviewed publication. Oh, that's fantastic. What a nice feather in the cap <laughs> for going into the scientific industry. Most certainly. And uh, a lot of the comments that I have gotten from uh, uh, deans and other representatives of graduate programs is that they see that our students come in more prepared to write and communicate their science and come in already having gone through that experience. So that is that is one of the reasons that uh, graduate programs, even though there was, we're not this uh, a STEM-centric school, we are uh, a minority-serving institution, we're a public institution, we're uh, medium-sized institution, they seek us out. They come to recruit at our school. And I'm talking, you know, uh, uh, heavy hitters, R01 institutions across the US. Wow. I wonder, can I ask a little about that publication piece? I, I see so much value. Um, thinking back to my, my own experience as a student and then as an educator, having those opportunities to really put undergraduate work on a platform, both as a attractant <laughs> for people that might be interested in studying, but also to really help people feel the full ownership of their education, um, to me, is hugely important. And with your students often being um, with English as a second language, how do they find that experience of publishing? Do they tend to publish in their native tongue or do they publish in English? How do you manage that? Oh, well, they publish in normal peer-reviewed journals uh, uh, and science, as you know, is mostly uh, uh, in English. Most of our students are uh, uh are, we have uh, both students from various diasporas, from Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and then also f- second and third generation immigrants in the city. Uh, uh, so not everyone necessarily have English as the second language. And uh, But at John Jay per se and through CUNY, there is a system in place to make sure that they uh, take those remedial sci- uh, English classes before they really start. What we have found is we have a couple of traditions in our program. One of them is on your first semester with your mentor, you're going to write a short research proposal that is going to define what is your project. Why is it needed? And like I like to tell them, just t- take a big step. At the end, tell me, why do you think this is going to change the world? Because we can get focused on, uh, I'm studying this particular protein or this, I'm doing this specific reaction, but that reaction and that protein are part of a bigger uh, system. And that system is part of even bigger systems. So even if a student is just studying how to modify, uh, 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 how to modify opioids by using various uh, uh, recombinant proteins, really what they're doing is lowering the level of detection, the minimum level of detection of opioids to help solve criminal cases. And 
Of course, all of this is in the context of criminal science as well, because of the the nature of the college as well. Oh, Very I love much. This. So. How cool! Oh, oh, I, ha I have so many of these stories. One of our labs, the work that I told you about previously, is the lab of Dr. Marta Conchero Guisan, and she's one of our forensic toxicologists. We also have this organic chemist. Her name is Dr. Gloria Proni, and uh, she is developing. She's using henna to develop a new fingerprinting reagent that would be able to detect fingerprints on paper. The problem with the current methods is that they tend to erase whatever was on the paper. So you sacrifice part of the evidence to get the fingerprint. So right now, and all of this with our undergraduate students, they're actually uh, developing this ink that uh, fluoresces, fluorescence in, when contact uh, with amino acids and doesn't erase the content of documents. Ooh. See, the context for this is is absolutely astounding. Oh, what a cool pro Do you know what? We have podcasts like this sometimes where I'm like, I want to go back and do all of these <laughs> cool things. <laughs> I love that your students have this opportunity to contextualize those uh, sometimes what can feel very niche and very specific parts of, of scientific research into such an um, immediately applicable scenario. Like, for example, a research project on Parkinson's disease um, or on a protein or tau or something like that. You can do all of that research, go for the detection, but the actual implementation of something it might never happen. You know that it's got context for a disease state, but you might never be able to see how your work ultimately impacts that endpoint. But these things are, are potential opportunities for you to revolutionize the way that criminal justice is done. Like suddenly you, you double the amount of evidence that you've got if you don't have to discard the the paper as well as to get the fingerprint, right? Very, so very much oh, so. And I work with I, I, I work it. with this amazing group of uh, uh, faculty members that have. We are a relatively small department. We combine all the sciences together. It's just one department of sciences. So we have toxicologists, chemists, biologists, and that has led to some quite interesting uh, interdisciplinary work. We have the ballistics person that works with the physicist. We have a team of uh, organic chemistry, a toxicologist, and a cancer biologist looking at how do anti not just how do some anti-cancer drugs work, and uh, potentially develop, combining various organic chemistry or uh, uh, functional groups onto those drugs to potentially use them as new drugs. Uh, and it's a lot of innovative uh, research because of the way that we run our uh, research here at John Jay. Absolutely fantastic. I must say, of all of the people that I've had the pleasure of podcasting with, you seem to have such empathy with the student experience, not just on an, like a, an educational level, but on a on an emotional level and also on a on a track level, like motivational level. And I have to ask, is it that your own student experience has shaped your approach to teaching at higher ed or how has that happened for you if it has? Not directly. My mother bought, it's mostly the story of my mother. I see my mother in all my students. And here's the reason. My mother grew up in Puerto Rico, in the mountains of Puerto Rico, in a little area called uh, uh, Castañer. It's uh, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the poorest town in Puerto Rico. She grew up in technically, you know, with an in the fifties, but with an outhouse, uh, uh, with the housing insecurity, a lot of family drama, alcohol and drug abuse in her environment. But and she's the only person in her family, at least in her generation, that not just finished high school, but went to college. And she arrived in college not knowing 
anything. She no one even told her she could apply to financial aid. She moved in first in a nunnery because she couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And they took her in and uh, she worked throughout her whole uh, college experience. She first get, uh, 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 got a, a, an associate's degree and uh, went on to uh, as, a, as an elementary teacher. Then uh, actually when she was uh, pregnant with me, she was finishing her bachelor's degree. So I've been, uh, I've been in college since utero. When I was in uh, a grade school, I used to go to her when she was finishing her, uh, finishing her master's, I used to go to class with her. Uh, and I would be uh, sometimes a little bit like, okay, where are all these adults talking? There's a professor talking. We want to learn. Come on. I've always been a nerd. I admit it. But uh, uh, my mother is the one that always had that experience for her, not having that help, having to discover everything first time, even though it really shows me what is the experience like for the first generation student, the first person in your family to go through, which is around 45 to 60 percent, depending on the class of our students. So we try to, again, meet the students where they are, make sure they have a, a, someone in the office that they feel comfortable with, maybe that they speak their language, they look like them, uh, that they can come in. And if they're running into trouble with a professor, with something, someone in the college, I always tell them, try to solve it yourself. If you can, then call me and then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do what I do and I will uh, uh, f- help you figure out and uh, navigate it. So is that is having that experience through my mother of seeing uh, what first generation students need. And then there, as you mentioned, as a little bit of my story, I went to, uh, I majored in uh, microbiology and on my orientation uh, uh, week in college on the last morning, was on a Friday morning, I went to an event only because they were offering free breakfast, I admit it. Uh, but it was about the research <laughs> programs. And I went there, sure. I, you know, got my bagel. I sat down, I started to listen. And they uh, were talking about, you know, if you are accepted into this program, you get a stipend, which I'm like, okay, that's nice. I get financial aid, but a little bit extra money mm-hmm. would be nice. And then they told us, and we go every year, we take all our students to one or two conferences. And at that moment, that's when I said, wait, wait a minute, I get paid and you pay for me to travel to go present my work. Okay, what do I do? Sign me up. What do I do? So from that moment, then I decided, you know what? I'm going to be part of these programs. What do I need to do to be the best candidate possible? And I've also used that approach with our students that plan to attend postgraduate programs. It's not just about doing research and getting good grades. Think from the point of view of the admission officials that's going to be reading your uh, application. What are they looking for? What is it that they look for in a potential applicant? And how can you take advantage of as ma- all the opportunities we have here for you to develop those skills? And if we don't have it, tell us and we'll figure out some, uh, some way that we can potentially do it. You seem to foster a really open dialogue with your students. Um, whenever there's something that they're missing, that's you're making opportunities for them. And that is something that we don't see everywhere. We, we get, um, we get great this. feedback from them. Uh, and they are very open. They are uh, uh, tell us what works, what doesn't, and uh, it it has shaped the way that we run the undergraduate research program, particularly. Sure. What kind of impact do you see for STEM students who've had the opportunity to learn from faculty members, like you said, who look like them, who have a similar identity and lived experience? Is there something that really stands out for you in terms of impact for them? Well, uh, as I mentioned, first and foremost, they get to see themselves as practitioners in the field instead of just students. So that fosters a sense of belonging and a sense of identity as scientists. And they see themselves, you know, 
I can't do this. This is something that when I was a freshman and I saw those more senior students, faculty members, they look like so big. It's, they look so, such a foreign concept. I've never, most of our students always tell us, before I started college, I never met a scientist. I'm just here because I like science. I like learning. I like uh, uh, learning new things about the natural world. I am a lot of them because it's forensic science. I uh, uh, grew up watching TV shows like Forensic Files or CSI and were impacted by them. So they come in and they, by doing the experience, by first and foremost being selected, the program is competitive. We used to, back 15, 16 years ago, we used to beg students because it was a new experience at the college. Now we have around 20 spots that open. The program is around 45 students, around 20 graduate every year. So we recruit around 20 students. We get 50, 60 students applicants. All right. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> no, and that this is comparing when in the 90s, as I mentioned, we had 200, 300 students applying and starting as freshmen, and maybe, maybe we graduated five. Now we yeah. have enough students to have, a, to have a program that's 45 students, and that's just less than half of the students at that level. Wow, okay. I mean, they must be getting so much equity in order to go on. And you, are you seeing these people graduate and then go on to jobs? What are their destinations like? Yes. So uh, we regularly track and very much pursue the ones that go on to do uh, postgraduate programs and PhDs. We have, I believe, starting last year, we hit uh, 75 of our alumni are either uh, have been admitted, are completing or have graduated from PhD programs. We have by now several that have gone into tenure track positions. We have quite a few that are going into industry. I have a graduate that I met her as a freshman on my first year at John Jay. And she is about to finish her PhD at Princeton University. And she is, although she still loves science, she realizes that she has a passion for writing. And now she's about to publish her first uh, science fiction book. Do you know what, Edgardo? I feel like I could talk to you for, for days. You've got so many stories and I just want to hear more of them. April, can we have them back, please? Come on, let's have, have some more. <laughs> Um, I've really enjoyed talking with you and I know that we're starting to come up to time right now and I just want to say a huge thanks for sharing all of your stories with us today but I do like to wrap up every episode with one last slightly big question so this is my question for you we've talked a lot about STEM students but I do wonder what about the support of the faculty I mean I'm talking to you you have so many stories you've come from such a um, you've got such an amazing route to where you are but I wonder if you've got any practical suggestions for how higher education administrators can support diverse and underrepresented STEM faculty members to really succeed as well. Uh, very much so. Uh, a lot of pressure and a lot of work is put on faculty members that come from underrepresented backgrounds because they're seeing that not only do they have to be excellent at what they do, they also have to fix the problem of representation. It should not just be their job. But most importantly, if they decide, and it's not the responsibility, some of them do it, some of them, you know, want to focus on their science, and that's okay too. But if they decide to do it, that has to count towards their professional development as a faculty member. It should be taken into account in their uh, tenure requirements that if they do this job, it actually counts. This is time that they spend. They could have spent it writing grants or in the lab, but they spent it doing this job that is expected of them. So because it's expected of them, it should count towards their tenure uh, work. And then finally, I mean, this is a, an even bigger problem, but uh, 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 something that I see is a lot of 
faculty members coming from underrepresented populations tend to be adjuncts or temporary work in academia. That's a big problem. I don't have a, I don't have effects unless somebody wants to give me a whole lot of money. I don't have effects, but there needs to be a little bit more parity and there needs to be, uh, particularly when you're looking for faculty members and tenure track faculty members, you should be looking among the faculty members that are part of your tenure, uh, I'm sorry, of your uh, adjunct uh, faculty members. Just because they went into adjunct doesn't mean that they can cut it, doesn't mean that they are less that. And actually they bring in a lot to teaching because that's what they were focusing on during that period. Absolutely. They're the ones that are maybe um, thinking of the fresh new ideas. How can I do better? How can I differentiate? How can I work with what, do more with what we have? It's so interesting to hear you highlight this idea of almost invisible work that people are doing in order to promote diversity inclusion within the workplace or where people feel that it's their responsibility to do it. And I'm with you 100%. That needs to be recognized and it needs to be, space needs to be made for it too. It's no It's not fair to ask people to do that in addition to all of the work that they've already got going on, because that just spreads people too thin, right? Very much. Amazing. Ah, what a fantastic answer to that question. (laughs) Um, I really hope that that this is something that is is on administrators' minds, being able to not just support the students, which to be fair, we see so many great initiatives for, but also making sure that those faculty members are there and able to do the good work that they're already doing without becoming burned out and disenfranchised with the with the work itself. Oh, amazing. I love it. <laughs> Dr. Edgardo Sanabria Valentin of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, thank you for joining us today. It's been a really fascinating and useful conversation. It's been a pleasure. Lapster has been instrumental in my teaching. And uh, although I thought at the beginning, oh, this is something I'll use through the pandemic, I have adapted to uh, now being part of my regular teaching. And uh, it's, it, I'm very excited to be talking to SG, knowing, uh, getting <laughs> to talk to someone that actually develops these tools is actually quite cool. So I think happy to come back, but I want to flip the conversation. I would love to know <laughs> how SJ gets her uh, inspiration to develop these tools. Oh, it's always a pleasure to connect with somebody that appreciates the art. Um, For me, it's talking to people like you and truly understanding what it is the students need, where their struggle is, but also how we can, you know, help educators be even more productive with the time that they have and even more free up the time for the activities that, you know, you need, you need time for. So if Labster can be something to to help you optimize the hours that you have in the week, then to me, that's a massive win. It helps you do the things that you do best. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for sharing time with us in this episode, Dr. Edgardo Sanabria Valentin. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, we hope you'll share it with a fellow teacher and subscribe to the Labster podcast. We invite you to send us your feedback at april at labster.com. Until next time, keep teaching and keep learning.